Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, well, I've got the wrong one here. This is a bit of a flustery morning. I blame it on my sick family. Here we are. She is, right there. You ask how I am getting on, wrote Luther in reply to a friend. I do not know. Satan was never so furious against me. I can say this, that I have never sought goods, honor, and glory, and I am not cast down by the hostility of the masses. In fact, the more they rage, the more I am filled with the Spirit. But, and this may surprise you, I am scarcely able to resist the smallest wave of inner despair. And that is why the least tremor of this kind, inner despair, expels, drives out the greatest of the other sort, outward turmoil. We spoke last week of Onfectun, that inner despair, turmoil that Luther was familiar with his trial before God. His troubled path had led him through the agonies of the monastery at Erfurt as an Augustinian monk, all the way to become a priest and a Bible teacher in the city of Wittenberg at Wittenberg University. And finally, it was that inner anguish that drove him to publish the 95 Theses, which were taken off the church door in Wittenberg and were multiplied and spread throughout Germany. So when we come to Martin Luther now at about 1517, he has suddenly been cast from his, uh, from being unknown at the Augustinian cloister now onto the public stage. He is becoming well known in Germany as he has protested the abuse, not indulgences themselves, but the, what he considers an abuse of selling indulgences, which was endangering people's souls because an indulgence, purchase of an indulgence would remove the urgency that people felt concerning their own sin. You could pay basically for forgiveness in a sense. And as that hammer pounded against the door, the reformation that we're considering finally began. It may be tempting then at this point to think of Luther's life and of the Reformation as mainly negative things. We could see Luther as primarily a man who is tormented with the agonies of conscience. We could see the Reformation as mainly a protest against abuses in the church. It would be tempting to think that, but we would be wrong on both counts. For though Luther and the Reformation were sparked, initiated by protests, that's why we are Protestants, even though they were sparked by protests, they really developed into something very positive, not negative. Take, for example, Luther's Onfectum of Spirit. What positive role did this very negative emotion play? You see something of it in this letter that I just quoted. Luther there says, this may surprise you, I am scarcely able to resist the smallest wave of inner despair and therefore any of these feelings of inner despair drive out any of my fears of outward turmoil. Even if the whole world is against me, I must follow conscience because of the pain of onfectune. That's really what he's saying. If Luther had been inwardly at peace, he might have been tempted, like many others, to preserve an outward peace with the Roman Catholic Church and with his European environment. But it was this lack of inward peace, really, that God used to drive him past that. He was so crushed by inner pangs of conscience that he came to the conclusion... I must follow my conscience even if it means opposing all outward unity. Even if it means running in the face of the whole world that I know. That is nothing compared to the smallest wave of inner despair. So there's one positive thing coming out of this negative emotion. It's a courage to stand for the truth. 
The few years of Luther's life that we're considering this morning are from 1517, when he nails the theses, to 1521. These are the most important and the most pivotal of Luther's whole life and of the Reformation. Last week was really a sort of preparation. This week the Reformation has dawned. And what we're going to see in these few years in Luther's life is that negative inner unfectum developing into something incredibly positive, really, into justification by faith. Since this German monk had laid face down in his cloister there at Erfurt before God, feeling his sinfulness, and then God had by his grace raised him up, Now he's poised to stand even when the whole world stands against him. And if ever he should discover, which probably he has not yet, but if ever he should discover a relief for this inner despair before God that he's feeling, he would be poised to proclaim that relief of despair to the whole world, come what may, no matter what opposition he should feel. He had felt the miseries of God's wrath before him. And by God's grace, he'd survived it. So now the wrath of man meant nothing to him. And we will see that in our lesson today from 1517 to 1521. So we're going to begin to follow Luther through these years and just for the sake of simplicity or organization, I want to tie these years to three places. They are primary places that Luther will go. Heidelberg, Leipzig, Worms, all German cities. So let's tie our lesson to those three. So here's the first. It's Heidelberg, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-E-R-G. You'll notice some of these Town names in Germany are B-E-R-G and some are B-U-R-G. That's not just to trick you so you can't spell them. One of them means a mound. Wittenberg means a white mound or a hill. And then the other one, I believe, means maybe a castle or something like that. So those are different. That's where that difference comes from. Anyways, this is Heidelberg. Now, when we left our hero last week, you remember he had just pounded his 95 theses to the church wall, spreads throughout Germany. Luther did not really intend for his theses to spread in the way they did. He didn't mean for everyone to read them, but he did mean for some people to read them. And one person in particular he wanted to read his 95 objections to indulgences, their abuse, was the archbishop. So the very day that he had nailed these to the door wall, to the door, he had also sent a copy to the archbishop, the head bishop. The archbishop, of course, took the theses and forwarded them to Rome. And so for the first time, the pope hears, it seems, of Martin Luther. The pope, you remember, is Pope Leo X. He was not happy, obviously, because he was making quite a bit of money through the sale of indulgences. And Really, as a consequence of Luther's objection, the money stopped coming in. So the Pope is not happy with this little monk and his objections, but the Pope's also incredibly busy. He's running a sort of empire of his own. So he desires to silence Luther, but he doesn't want to spend a lot of time and energy doing it at first. So he comes to this decision. Luther is an Augustinian monk. There is a meeting of Augustinians, which happens every three years, And it's about to occur in 1518 in Heidelberg. The Pope thinks Luther's going to be there anyways. So he appoints a new general, gives him the task of the Augustinians, and gives him the task of silencing this monk. Says he'll be there anyways. This could be an easy way to be rid of this problem of this drunken monk. And so we join Luther about half a year after he's nailed his 95 theses as he travels to Heidelberg in order to be a part of this Augustinian meeting. Now, to understand what happens at this meeting and afterward, you have to understand something that plays a huge role in Luther's life. And that is the feud that exists between the Augustinians and the Dominicans. The Augustinians and the Dominicans They were both orders of monks 
that existed in the one Roman Catholic Church, but like many organizations that are in proximity, there was a great rivalry between the two. The Augustinians were sort of the newcomers. The Dominicans were more well-established. So a feud exists, and already Luther's experienced something of this feud because when he called out, you remember, John Tetzel, one of the worst hawkers of indulgences, Tetzel just so happened to be a Dominican. That did not make this little Augustinian monk popular with the Dominicans. So there will be many negative repercussions of this feud between the Augustinians and the Dominicans in Luther's life. But there will also be a few positive consequences of the feud. And one of those positive consequences we find at Heidelberg. So here's Luther, an Augustinian, coming to be in a sense, tried by Augustinians. And Luther will, from here on out, almost never receive so nice and hospitable a reception as he receives at Heidelberg from the Augustinians. Why? In part, because the Dominicans hate this Augustinian monk, and therefore the Augustinians are going to try to take his side against the Dominicans. They're going to defend one of their own. Not everyone agrees with him, but there's that rivalry going on, and it gives him really a voice for people to listen to him. What did Luther come to Heidelberg to discuss? This wasn't officially a trial, although the Pope hoped it would silence him. He came to give an account for his own role as a vicar in the Augustinian order, but he also came to defend the view of the order's founder, Augustinian, Augustine from the 400s the church father. And he came specifically to defend Augustine's view of human nature. Luther was really more Augustinian than most of the Augustinians, especially when it came to human nature. See, Augustine in the 400s had argued that we, in our nature as fallen human beings, have zero ability to reach out to God. We can't make our way to God. We are spiritually dead. God, in his grace, a great theme of Augustine, which was unusually absent from many of the church fathers, but Augustine took hold of Paul's view of grace and said, God must be the one who reaches down to us. Human nature, in Augustine's view, it's a very bleak view. It's an Ephesians 2 type of a view. We are dead. God must take the initiative. You might remember that was sort of formed in Augustine because of sexual temptation. He was so tempted sexually, and that was a part of his conversion experience. He's wrestling with this and feels entirely enslaved. He feels like he has no ability. So when he reads Paul saying we are spiritually dead or Jesus, I'm sure saying that those who commit sin are slaves to sin, Augustine said, yes, that is true. So he came to a right view of human nature. And now think of Luther. He's an Augustinian. He has at some point now been reading Augustine, and he feels exactly the same way. He's experienced this utter inability. He's tried to save himself through the auspices of the church itself, and he's been unable to do it. He's felt the misery of soul that comes from never being certain you're right with God, feeling you've always failed, you've always come short. He agrees with Augustine's view of human nature, and he actually came to this meeting at Heidelberg to argue it. Augustine, in his day, was also involved in a debate about human nature, and he was involved in the debate with a man named Pelagius. You don't have to remember these names, but if you ever hear the terms Pelagian or semi, like halfway, Pelagian, And you'll understand that that's a view that believes that we can make progress toward God without God's help in some way. Now, what had happened after Augustine argued with Pelagius is that the Roman Catholic Church had embraced Augustine's view of human nature. Officially speaking, it sided with Luther, with Augustine, that man cannot do anything to make its way to God. God must take the initiative. But in practice... What really developed was a semi-Pelagian view. The church really held a sense of, well, you can do something. God does have to help you, but he's not going to give you commands if you can't do them. You can do something. So the church taught in Luther's day, just do what's in you. 
do what you can, God won't refuse that. It's a semi-Pelagian view, and that is what Luther's arguing against. What's really interesting is perhaps the most important book Luther will ever write, many years later, is a book on this topic called On the Bondage of the Will. So we're reading backward from that book, but what's interesting is that you and I, sometimes when we think of Calvinism, that's what we call this view of human nature, it's a part of Calvinism, total depravity, that we can't make our way to God, he must initiate. When we think of that view, we also often set it next to Arminianism and we say, you know, these are somewhat two approximate equals, you can go one way or the other, some churches go this way, some churches go that way. Now this is not to deny that there are many believers, true believers, love the Lord, serve him, who are Arminian, meaning they think there's... It's different than semi-Pelagian, but not to get into that. Basically, there's something we can do to get to God. Calvinism and Arminianism, we set on the same plane, but Luther could not disagree more. In fact, he might not think you're a believer if you're Arminian. We don't agree with him on that, but he was adamant. He's before Calvin, so he can't call him Calvinist, but that's what he's arguing. And he's saying, the reason it's, here at Heidelberg, the reason it's so important we don't lose this view of human nature the Bible teaches is that if you really think that there's something you can do, anything, even if it's incredibly difficult, through the sacraments of the church, climbing stairs on your knees, praying, fasting, if you can do it to get to God, then again, you're not going to feel, you might not feel that unfectung of soul where you've come to the end of yourself and realize, I can't. God drove Luther there. You might not go there if you feel like you're accomplishing something. And if you don't get to that point of desperation, you're not going to cry out to Christ. You're not going to see him as the only way of salvation. You're not going to feel an infecting. That's again his concern as he argues for Augustine's view of human nature. And so at Heidelberg, Luther very famously argues for what he calls a theology or theologian of the cross. He says the church today, the Roman Catholic Church, has a theology of glory. It glorifies man's ability. It says, here are the sacraments, come to the church, and if you work hard enough, you, by your work, can get to God. You can get the merits of Christ and the saints given to you through the sacraments. You can be right with God through your work. It's a theology of glory, and it was reflected in the riches and the exuberance in the church itself. It was wealthy, it was powerful, it challenged kings and kingdoms. It was a theology of glory, and Luther said, that's all wrong. The Bible teaches a theology of the cross. The cross doesn't look glorious. The cross looks terrible. So when you approach a view of human nature that says you can do nothing, well, that, that seems harsh. But you know what else seems harsh? The cross. That's what Luther argued. A theology of the cross is willing to come under the cross and to say even if rejecting our ability and viewing human nature in this bleak way seems bleak or maybe useless, not going to help anyone grow, they're going to disappear. Even if it looks that way, well, the cross looked that way. So we embrace the Bible's teaching on this point. Now, the Pope had hoped that this meeting at Heidelberg would silence this rebellious monk. But it didn't. And in fact, it contributed to his popularity. Now he was becoming more of a household name in Germany. Because the Augustinians are defending one of their own kind. The older Augustinians shook their head, but the younger Augustinians, they embraced this teaching. They thought this is exactly what we need, including a man named Martin Butzer. <clears throat> we unfortunately won't have time to cover, but an important reformer himself was there and influenced at that meeting. So the Augustinians are willing to listen. The Dominicans, on the other hand, are not. There is a Dominican, Sylvester Prierius, and he is in the sacred palace at Rome, an important person. He writes an attack against Luther, first strike of the Dominicans. <clears throat> but the Pope sees, okay, the Augustinians aren't cutting it, so here's a Dominican writing, Prierius, from the palace at Rome. The Pope also sees, I need to take this a little more seriously, so he actually cites Luther to come to Rome to come to be questioned. Luther knows if he ends up in Rome, he's not coming back. 
He has no Augustinian protection there. He will fall prey to Dominicans and those like them who want him destroyed. So Luther begs his prince, you may remember, Frederick the Wise, very wise man, his German prince, and he begs him, please arrange that I may be tried, not in Rome where I'll be destroyed, but may be tried on German soil. Prince Frederick realizes there's an important Italian cardinal named Cajetan, C-A-G, sorry, C-A-J-E-T-A-N, Cardinal Cajetan, who's going to be in Germany anyways for a meeting at Augsburg. And so he arranges with this important cardinal, Frederick does, says, meet with Luther, settle your guys' dispute here so he doesn't have to go to Rome. Cajetan agrees. To keep matters brief, at Augsburg, Luther, October of 1518, he goes to Augsburg, he meets with Cajetan, and it goes very badly. Because Cajetan was under orders to have Luther say, I recant, I renounce everything I taught, I submit to the church. They said, either Luther says that or you pack him up and ship him to Rome. Well, when Luther came, he thought he was going to defend his position. So when Cajetan said, no, recant or else, Luther said, I can't recant unless you convince me by scripture. So after three very unsuccessful meetings, Luther books it out of there, goes back to Wittenberg to the university. Now, Cajetan was a brilliant Dominican, obviously not very favorable to this little no-name Augustinian monk. He was somewhat gracious in what he wrote to the Pope, but he obviously was against Luther. This confirmed only all the more for Luther that the scholastic theologians, the theologians that represented the church in medieval ages, that they were just puffs of air. They weren't biblical. They were devoted to pagan philosophers and ideas. Cajetan was one of the great scholastic theologians of his day. And so it's here in our story, about 1518, end of the year, that we finally come to the most important event in all of Luther's life one you maybe have heard of. We call it the Tower Experience. Now, I've already said that from 1513 onward, ever since Luther had started teaching at Wittenberg University, teaching the Bible, he preached through Psalms, lectures through Psalms, through Romans, through Galatians, and later through Psalms again. Ever since 1513, there's been a development in his thought. And it's difficult for us to pinpoint exactly when he thought what. But most scholars on Luther today believe That when the theses were nailed, Luther had not had this breakthrough yet. This probably occurs about the end of 1518. At Heidelberg, he's already argued about human nature. He knows we can't get to God. That's not possible. He tried it at Erfurt. He tried it as an Augustinian monk. He realized the church does not offer the sort of salvation that he needs. And so he's realized through his teaching, even in Psalm 22, you remember? Where Jesus is crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's starting to see there's something going on there. Jesus is experiencing this turmoil. But it's not until 1518 that this happens. The tower experience. I can't put it better than Luther. So let me just read you a few paragraphs of his own explanation later in life of what happened about this time. He's studying Romans to teach it. And he says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but one expression, the justice of God. It's in Romans chapter 1. Because I took it to mean, this is what the scholastic theologians of the Middle Ages had always taught, I took it to mean that that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated him and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until... I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that, this is Romans 1.17, the just shall live by his faith. 
Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, says Luther here, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his faith, face. Luther finally finds relief for his inner turmoil. Now his unfectune will accompany him the rest of his life in some degree, but this was its death blow. This was what he was looking for in the cloister. This is everything he was longing for. It was almost too good to be true if he had not read it for himself in Scripture and probably even in the first critical New Testament in Greek that Erasmus had just published, he had read for himself in Romans that God justifies the sinner freely, not through the sacraments of the church, not through scaling the Scala Sancta in Rome on your hands and knees, not through relics, not through all the million works and pains and sufferings that the church imposed to offer a sort of salvation, but it was just through faith because as Paul says, the just, the righteous person, what Luther longed for, shall live by faith, trusting the promise of God. This is justification by faith alone. And finally, probably the end of 1518, Luther grasps this. He realizes, and this develops later, that he could be righteous because the righteousness or justice of God in Scripture in Romans means the righteousness of Christ that God, when we believe, imputes to our account. We don't have to be perfect. We'll never attain it. But the perfectness of Christ is imputed to us by faith. Luther realizes this, that righteousness is imputed to him. He has been set free from the bondage of having to earn salvation. And therefore, it is only a matter of time before he breaks away entirely from all the bondage of the Roman Catholic Church. And in fact, it's a matter of not very much time. This is what brings us to our second location. We're moving from Heidelberg now, and we're coming to Leipzig. L-E-I-P-Z-I-G. Luther's negative view of human nature has now developed into a positive view of justification by faith alone in Christ. But this new wine of the gospel could not fit in the old wineskin of the Roman Catholic system. Leipzig is going to make this very clear. The Dominicans have been pressing Luther hard, but now an attack comes from an entirely unexpected quarter. There was a brilliant professor named John Eck. John Eck, not only brilliant, great at speaking, great at debating, had been friendly with Luther, had written him some friendly letters. All of a sudden, around this time, he turns against him. And John Eck challenges Luther and really his companion, Karlstadt, at the university, but he's challenging Luther to a debate to be held at the University of Leipzig, which is the rival of the University of Wittenberg, by the way. But he challenges them to a debate there to take place in 1519. Now Luther, as he's preparing for this debate, he knows he's going to argue that, for one thing, the primacy of the Roman church, that the Roman Catholic church is the church the primacy of the Roman Catholic Church and of the Pope, the head of that particular church, he believed was an invention of the last 400 years. 
There is in 1500s invented the last 400 years by the popes in their decretals or their decrees. And so as he prepares to make this argument, he begins to study in depth all the decretals that the popes had made in the last 400 years. And he is absolutely stupefied. He cannot believe what he finds written in the decretals. He writes this to a friend before the debate. I whisper this in your ear. I do not know whether the Pope is Antichrist or his apostle. So does he in his decretals corrupt and crucify Christ. That is the truth. Everything he finds in the decretals tends to contradict what he's reading in the scriptures. The debate itself comes to pass, 1519. There is John Eck. There's Luther and those with him. He actually arrives with students from Wittenberg, I think a few hundred of them with battle axes. Great way to arrive for a debate. This is an 18-day debate, very long. And in those 18 days, John Eck, a brilliant strategist, has a plan how he's going to condemn Luther. So in those 18 days, he drives Luther into a corner. His goal is to associate Luther with past heretics, for then the church has to agree Luther is a heretic. So he says, one day of the debate, John Eck says to Luther, I see that you are following the condemned and pestiferous errors of John Wycliffe, who said, it is not necessary for salvation to believe that the Roman church is above all others. And you are espousing the pestilent errors of John Huss, who claimed that Peter neither was nor is the head of the Holy Catholic Church. And you know what Luther said? Luther actually said, no, 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 no. I'm not arguing for us. I'm not with us. Then there's a break in the debate. Luther goes to the university library, say, what did Huss believe? He looks up what the Council of Constance, you remember, had argued against Huss, what articles of faith it had condemned in Huss as heretical, and Luther was shocked again. And he realized, wait, this is what I'm arguing. <laughs> so he comes back into the debate, and he, he admits, you're right. I do side with Huss in what he's argued. At this point, the Duke, Duke George, who's presiding over the debate, cries out, the plague, because he is a German Duke, realizing the last hundred years the Hussite wars caused so much trouble to Germany. He associates that with Huss. But Luther then says strongly this, to summarize his whole argument in the Leipzig debate, to come to this point, he replies, I will tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I want to believe freely and be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university, or pope. I will confidently confess what appears to me to be true, whether it has been asserted by a Catholic or a heretic, whether it has been approved or reproved by a council. Luther has tasted freedom and he has broken away from the church's teaching on salvation and found justification by faith through the scriptures. And here, I don't think he wanted to do it, but John Eck has driven him into a corner and now he is breaking from much more than just the church's view of salvation. He really had to choose at this moment where he would stand. Here is the church which he loved and here is the truth which he loved. And Luther in that moment chose to stand with the truth. So the tear between Luther and the church continues to develop until it basically rips apart as we come to our final location, Worms. W-O-R-M-S. By an odd coincidence of language and history, this is, we're going to speak of the Diet of Worms. <laughs> it is not a Diet of Worms. It's a meeting at Worms, German city, but... It's always humorous. We're now approaching the moment of Luther's life that's best known. If you've heard anything of Luther, this is probably what you've heard. After Luther left Leipzig, he knew his days were numbered. He had basically refused a citation from the Pope to come to Rome. 
He had instead gone to Kayatan, a sort of alternative, and that had gone miserably. He had just sided with two heretics, both condemned officially by the church at the Council of Constance. Rome could not long endure a rebellious monk with no punishment. So in June of 1520, the church let the hammer fall. The Pope attached his official seal, his bulla, to what's called a bull or a decree that he published June of 1520, basically calling for Luther to stop what he's teaching, submit to the church, and he has 60 days to do it from the time he receives this letter, or he will be excommunicated from the church and banned from the Holy Roman Empire. So basically, that's a death sentence, if that really goes into effect. Means anyone who finds him can kill him, take his goods, and receive a reward. At least kill him and receive an award. Pope says, you've got 60 days to make this decision. Now, God's providence in history, it took three months for the bull to move from Rome up across the mountains and all the way up to Germany to Wittenberg. And those three months were incredibly important months. Because in those three months, about that time, one came just after, Luther publishes, besides the bondage of the will that comes later, his three most important tracts, books. Three of them, as he's waiting for the bull to arrive. In one of them, he now radicalized after Leipzig, realizing, oh wow, I do agree with heretics, so now he's more freed up. In one of them, he calls upon the German secular rulers, the princes, to correct the abuses of the church in their domain, much like Wycliffe had done in England. In another one of them, he attacks the very heart of the church. He goes for the sacramental system, the seven sacraments through which grace is given to the people in the church, and he narrows them down to two or three. And finally, in a more positive way, he argues for the freedom that the Christian has. He's the most free of any person justified by faith. The bull makes his way and does finally arrive in Wittenberg October the 10th, 1520. Now, even up to this point, Luther had considered himself a loyal son of the church. Here, no more. Once this arrives, once he realizes the church is not going to debate scripture with me, It's not interested. The church is only trying to silence the gospel that I've discovered and that I'm proclaiming. He realizes that the Pope, what he suspected before Leipzig, the Pope is Antichrist. That she didn't just need an inner moral reform, as others were arguing for. Luther realized the church itself, in the hand of the devil, has become a conspiracy to silence the gospel. Therefore, you can't fix it from the inside. He wrote the day after he received the bull to a friend. He said, I feel much freer now that I am certain the Pope is Antichrist. From the time it arrives, October the 10th, he has 60 days. And when the 60 days are up, what does Luther do? He takes students and they proceed outside the gate of Wittenberg. They produce a bonfire and they burn books of the Roman Catholic Church, just as his own books had been burnt in Rome when he was declared a heretic. And then Luther takes the bull against him and he throws it into the fire. It's at this point in 1520 that what Erasmus had said when Luther attacked the sacraments is really true. The breach is irreparable. It cannot be fixed. However, while Luther is now severed from the Roman Catholic Church, he is still a part of the Holy Roman Empire. He knows Romans 13 and he is in submission to that empire. Charles V just became emperor the year before in 1519. Charles V is only in his late teens, or maybe he's reached 20 by now. He's a very young man, but he is dedicated to defending and preserving the Catholic traditions handed down to him from his Habsburg forefathers. So Charles V wants to try Luther. Now, Frederick the Wise intervenes, says, let's not do this in Rome. Frederick the Wise was a relative of Charles V, I believe. He says, let's not do this in Rome. Let's do this on German soil. He succeeds, and so Charles V decides that this monk, this rebellious monk causing trouble, Martin Luther, will be tried 
at the, not a church council actually, but the imperial diet, the meeting of the empire, to take place in Worms in 1521. So in April of 1521, Luther comes for the most iconic of all the events of the Reformation. He doesn't know that, but he's on his way. And really, in Luther's head, oftentimes there had been this thought that had been often argued against him. Are you alone wise? When he was on his way, I think, to Heidelberg, or maybe it was to Augsburg, actually, that thought plagued him, and he thought, now I'm going to die and disgrace my parents. He's still wrestling with these doubts, with these insecurities. And you see that the first day he's tried. It's a smaller meeting, and there he is. Another John Eck, unfortunately, as we study history, is not the same one, is there to try him. There is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the most powerful man in the world at that point. Then you have great princes, all the powerful people of Germany. Great people. And here's this little Augustinian monk being tried. They're all sitting there to see. And there's Luther and John Eck, this representative. He has a tab- some tables set out with Luther's works on them that Luther had been writing. And he asks Luther, are these your books? And Luther says, yes, they are. And there's even more than these. And then John Eck, this representative, asks him, do you recant them? Now, we don't know why this happened. Was it a political thing going on? Probably it was honest in Luther. But at that moment, he asks for one more day to think about his answer. He says, I know whatever answer I give, you know, the German people are watching me and the world, that there are souls in the balance. How I answer this question. Can I have one day? And amazingly, Charles V grants him one day. So Luther goes back and he wrestles in his little cell, wrestling. He comes back the next day and by a stroke of providence, now he's at a larger session. There are many more people in this meeting to hear Martin Luther. The same question is asked, are these your books? And he answers, yes, they are. They say, do you recant? And his answer now is more formal and thought out. He says, they're not all the same type of work. I can't recant all of them because they're different. But those who are trying Luther say, enough of that. Answer us without horns. Answer us without, you know, equivocating like this. And so finally, Luther gives his famous statement. There he is. People are wondering, he's had a day. Is he doubting himself? Is he going to hold fast what he taught? Is he going to reconcile with the church that he loves? He realizes if he doesn't, he will die. So people are watching to see what Luther does. The whole Reformation hinges in a sense on this, this moment and what this little monk will do. And he boldly says, Since then, your majesty, the emperor, and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. This backwoods German peasant monk of the Augustinian order, physically weak by his fastings, inwardly unstable, tormented, he stands before the emperor and other great men in opposition to the pope, to the church, to the Holy Roman Empire, to the whole world that he knows. And everyone wonders if he will stand. He's spent so long in on fectum of soul, lying in his monastic cell, on the ground face down. But God, by the gospel of grace, through justification by faith, has raised him up. And now, in this moment, he stands before the whole world, against the whole world. His agonies are breaking into broad, sunlit uplands. Now he stands He stands against the world. God help him. We'll continue this next week, but I want to take just a few minutes if anyone has any questions.
Yes, Marilyn. Yes. Uh, what was the result? Um, mm. Positive, negative. Yeah. Uh, what, what was then understood? Mm. Great debate of eighteen days. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So Marilyn's asking, what was the outcome, basically, of the debate at Leipzig? Um, as often happens in debates, both sides were convinced they won. <laughs> in one sense, if we're talking about. Um, you know, which was often the case in these debates, who knows the church fathers the best, then John Eck won. He knew them better. He's a great thinker. Uh, if we're talking about who knew the Bible the best, that's a different question, obviously. So both had thought that they won, but, you know, from John Eck's perspective, he had done what he had come to accomplish. He had associated. You know, on that day, even justification by faith, when Luther began teaching that, he couldn't be immediately condemned for it, because the church had not formalized what it thought about that. It didn't actually even know. You know. So when the Pope hears that, he immediately sends off to scholars, says, you guys figure this out. So John Eck, I think, knows it's going to be hard to fight him on that point. It's going to be hard to figure these things out. So instead, he says, all, all I'll do is I'll work with precedent. So we got John Huss and we got John Wycliffe. They said similar things. And the council said they're heretical. So I don't even have to prove Luther's heretical. All I got to do is prove that he agrees with them. So I think John Eck definitely came away from the debate thinking, I, I won. And probably those on his side thought the same because, you know, there's no hope for Luther now. He's a heretic. But Luther on his side, when he autobiographically gives the debate, you know, he's the hero and he did a great job and he defeated this, this thinker. From a Protestant perspective, Luther won because he was siding with the truth. Ah, uh, good questions. Yeah. So Marilyn asked. So in other words, there was no official declaration who's the winner. Actually, it depended on the debate, um, and there was an argument at the beginning of the Leipzig debate whether there would be judges who would kind of determine how it went. You know, I can't remember because I think it was Karl Stott who was actually originally it was him and Eck were arguing. Luther got in there. I think it was uh, Karl Stott. I believe it was him, who wanted there either to be judges or not to be judges, and they went the other way. I'd have to look that up. If there were official judges who said, this is who wins, it probably wouldn't have made too much of a difference anyways. You just think your side won. Okay, are the common people invited to these debates, or are, is it people that are in nobles? So Marilyn's asking if the common people were invited to these debates. That I actually don't know. Um, okay, I mean, I th Yes. Um, because they didn't have access to things like he did. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know if maybe the debate was only for the nobles and the, and the name people and all of this, or if the common people were invited to hear. Yeah. So Marilyn's asking, are the common people invited? Luther had a big influence. Actually, when Luther goes to Worms, when he's on his way through the city to go to Worms, being led there, to be tried for heresy, uh, the people are very much behind him. So much so that the accounts are they have to take him through back alleys to try to get him through. Everybody's cheering. In fact, one of the, uh, I don't think we'll talk about this next week, but one of the things that had happened is at Worms, after trials ended, one of the things that sways the opinion of the judges, we may say this, is that there was a picture of a peasant's shoe posted throughout the city. And that's from uh, basically a peasant terrorist group saying, suggesting we side with Luther, yeah. you better treat him well or there will be consequences. So there was popular support, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, actually, even, even when the bull reached Germany, <laughs> John Eck was the very unfortunate fellow, him along with a guy named Aleander, who were the nuncios. They were sent by the Pope to take the bull and announce it all throughout Europe. Uh, and you f I think it was, it was either John Eck or Aleander, maybe Aleander in Germany, very unfortunate fellow, because everywhere you go and you're declaring, Luther's a heretic, and you know, you're getting driven out of town. Because the German people love Luther. He said, Aleander said, I think nine out of ten people love Luther, and the other one at least hates the Pope, you know? So it was not a fun job. Yes, any other question before we conclude? Yeah. Oh, good point. 
He's asking where the 95 theses, what was that? What were the theses? Yes, they were points, usually single sentence points. This was common if you're a professor and you wanted to debate something. So even Heidelberg had this. Any of the debates had this. You would first put forward your points that you're going to argue. So for example, the first one's a very famous one. And it's Luther says, you know, thesis number one, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he means that the Christian's whole life is to be one of repentance. So that's the thesis. In other words, he's arguing against the idea of penance as just a confession to a priest and you're done. There were 95 points, points, definitely. Yes, Dan? To your point that the uh, Roman Catholic Church has not identified their position on Mm -hmm. just show them by faith, it took another 24 years Mm -hmm. Yep, that's great. Dan, you probably heard him, but Dan's point was, we said the church didn't have official position on justification by faith yet. That comes 24 years later, as the church is basically reacting against the Reformation at the Council of Trent, and it's the Council of Trent, this is official teaching of the church to this day, it hasn't been changed, it's, it says, anyone who believes that we are justified by faith apart from works, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. So that was the reaction. Good, okay, I need to finish this up here. Let me pray and we will be done. Lord, I thank you very much again for your servant, Martin Luther, who was a flawed man and weak and inwardly unstable, and yet you chose purely by your grace that you would not only save him, but use him to effect a great transformation in Europe that we feel still to this day. Thank you that we have the freedom to read the Bible, to believe it, not to be governed by the dictates of any pope or council that would contradict scripture. But we are at liberty, amazingly, in our country to believe what we believe to be true from the scriptures and to live in accordance with it. That, I know, is came to us through the blood of many martyrs, and I thank you for it, and definitely through your hand. I pray you'd preserve that in this country and turn the tide of opposition so we may continue to believe what is true. But I pray that if the tide does not turn, we would have the courage of the reformers to stand against the world and suffer death if necessary in defense of the truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.